Chapter 7, The Revelation No book of the Bible has alarmed so many readers or has been used to cause such fear and disturbance throughout church history than Revelation. Its images of things like flying scorpion locusts with men's heads and women's hair, wearing iron breastplates and stinging people for five months, or dragons or seven-headed beasts with ten horns and crowns, the mark of the beast, 666, or great wars with blood flowing up to the horses' bridles have baffled Christians for centuries, as well as provided fodder for prophecy experts so-called experts, to deceive and frighten millions. As we shall see, it is not meant to do that at all. When properly understood, it relays quite the opposite message. Understanding the Time and Message While the book certainly contains some wild imagery, we do not need to be alarmed by it for very good reasons. Not the least of these reasons is an interesting feature that far too often has gone overlooked. The book itself says that its predictions were not for some distant future date like ours. In fact, the very first sentence of the book says otherwise. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Just like we read with Hebrews in the last chapter, this soon must mean it was very near for the author and readers of Revelation. Only two verses later, the introduction repeats this outlook. The time is near. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. The exact same warnings appear at the very end of the book as a reminder. Revelation 22, 6, 7, and 10. In case these flashing caution lights at the beginning were not enough, the book has several others throughout the middle. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Chapter 2, verse 10. I will come to you soon. Chapter 2, verse 16. Wake up and strengthen what remains is about to die. For I have found your works complete in the sight of my God. Chapter 3, verse 2. I will also keep thee from the hour of the trial that is about to come upon all the world. Chapter 3, verse 10. I am coming soon. Chapter 3, verse 11. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Chapter 8, verse 13. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Chapter 11, verse 14. The book ends on this note with a fourth and fifth repetition in chapter 22 alone. Behold, I am coming soon. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12 and 20. Instead of heeding these multiple indicators, eager prophecy commentators for centuries have found alleged fulfillments in every grand event or historical threat imaginable. Just in the 20th century, people have claimed that Joseph Stalin, Benito Mussolini, Adolf Hitler, and many others were the beast or the Antichrist. 
During the Reformation and for centuries beyond, Protestants claimed that the Pope was the Antichrist. Some still do. Even Ronald Wilson Reagan, each name has six letters, thus 666, did not escape identification by some as this demonic world leader who was alleged to be on our horizon. There have been hundreds of such predictions throughout the millennia of the church. In each case, teachers could offer persuasive arguments built on several points of likeness between the historical events or persons and the imagery of Revelation. We have had several even in our own recent decades all through the 20th and 21st centuries. In each case, however, every single one of these hundreds of persuasive cases have been wrong. The moment we understand that the soon warnings were written for the first century audience, we will realize why all these predictions were mistaken. The events described in Revelation had to have already taken place back in that early church generation. Consider this verse. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there. Revelation chapter 11 verse 14. If we read this like a typical first century reader would do, we would immediately understand that the author, John the Apostle, was being instructed in this vision to measure the Old Testament temple standing in Jerusalem at that time. To anyone reading today, this indicates the temple was still standing when John wrote the letter. This means it had to have been written before AD 70. Modern teachers who deny this, however, frequently run into this difficulty and have to reinterpret this vision instead of first following what it would have meant for the first century readers who were most concerned with that soon and what it actually meant. They will argue that this is to be a rebuilt temple and that is yet in our future. They never answer, however, why John is being told to tell people about something allegedly thousands of years off in the future, while at the same time telling them that it must soon take place. Especially when the thing they are being told about is an unmistakable feature standing right there in front of their eyes. These conflicts make no sense except in an attempt to make the most sensational parts of the Bible frighten people into certain beliefs and actions today. The simple understanding is that John related something about the temple that still stood at that time and about the great cataclysmic judgments that would soon take place in their lifetimes. We now know for a fact this temple and people suffered the devastating destruction in AD 70. This fits perfectly and simply. What then do all the crazy visions and creatures and images mean? Who or what is the beast, etc.? In one sense, these things really do not matter too much to us. That is, they do not matter in the sense that we need to live in fear of them and try to pinpoint what each detail may mean in our own times. For readers who desire to study more, the details of such things do fit rather nicely and simply with details about the Roman Empire, the emperors, and much more. 
We are even told that the seven heads of that seven-headed beast are seven mountains, Revelation 17.9, a reference to that ancient city famously built on seven hills, Rome. Whatever these other details here and there mean, we know that the cataclysmic and wild events do not refer to things in our future. Prophecy writers have tried to take that prophecy about the flying scorpion-tailed locust into first century prophets' best guess description when being shown 21st century Apache helicopters. The man's face is the pilot. The woman's hair is the spinning rotors. The stinging tail is the guns. The iron breastplate is the metal body, etc., This description has been persuasive to many readers already persuaded that we today are living in the last days and that these visions must somehow make sense for our time. But they were simply symbolic of armies and destructions carried out in the first century. Other details, however, work in the reverse. For example, How are we supposed to expect a modern-day war with Apache helicopters, yet also with blood flowing up to horses' bridles? Are we really to expect armies riding out on horseback with swords against tanks and helicopters on a mass scale to generate so much blood? Will we really see a massive mixing of 1st century and 21st century technologies? This just does not make sense. The best route with Revelation is to understand it as a message like so much of the rest of the New Testament we have seen, marking, perhaps in more vivid terms than others, the end of the last days of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New. How it explains the beginning of this New Covenant and its lasting nature that ties the whole Bible back together and stands as a lasting vision for us still today. The Healing of the Nations After all kinds of judgment, war, destruction, and cataclysm, the final two chapters of Revelation provide us with a grand vision of the future. Again, this is the future from the perspective of AD 70, just with lasting effects into the indefinite future. After that momentous event, we should understand the visions of peace, light, and abundance which follow in that perspective as well. It is future to them, but also a spiritual reality which came about, and which has been present for all believers from then on through today. Two major parts of this vision deserve our attention. These are the new heavens and new earth and the restored Garden of Eden. If you recall, when we reviewed the prophets, we covered this prophecy from Isaiah. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17 and 19. After God finally triumphs over his enemies, including death itself, he resurrects his people for new life. This has a spiritual reality to it that exists already for believers. Revelation 21 picks up Isaiah's theme to describe this new spiritual kingdom. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, from the former things have passed away. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Not only does this reaffirm the prophecy of Isaiah verbatim in parts, it also employs other themes we have discussed throughout the Bible. This new heavens and new earth is not another physical earth, but a spiritual place. It is a new Jerusalem described in terms of a marriage, that same fundamental image used by Moses, the prophets, the wisdom books, Paul, and others. As we said early on, the whole rest of the Bible is the drama of finding a way to draw near to God and dwell with him again. Here we see that reality at last. Couched in terms of Isaiah's prophecy, no more tears, no more hurting or destruction in God's holy mountain, Jerusalem. Revelation treats many other prophecies this way, from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Joel, Micah, Hosea, and others. The book of Revelation is, among other things, John's way of making clear that all the prophets were being fulfilled in his generation's lifetime. Chapter 21 describes the New Jerusalem in glowing terms of peace, security, abundance, and light. Interestingly, this city specifically has no temple in it anymore. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Revelation chapter 21 verse 22. Chapter 22 returns us to the even more primal image of these ideas. Then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. In this image, we have been returned to Eden. This is not some futuristic, literal kind of way, but as a spiritual reality in Jesus Christ, in fellowship with his spirit, his people, and his teachings, this fellowship, loving God and loving one another, has an ultimate mission and purpose before it, the mission of healing the nations. Far from being a frightening treatise of future cosmic destruction, fear, and annihilation, Revelation is a book designed to show us in spiritual language what the destruction of the old system in the first century would look like, and then what the future should be like in the spiritual temple of Jesus Christ. It is a future in which believing and practicing the teachings of Christ will transform the entire world like nourishment, medicine, and healing from a tree of life. The fruit of these trees is the healing fruit of the Spirit, peace, 
patience, joy, humility, love, etc. See Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Instead, therefore, of fearing some grand global conspiracy of some future Antichrist, believers in the Bible ought to be busy working hard to cultivate these fruits in their lives, their families, their legislatures, and every aspect of life. We should envision Revelation 21 and 22, and we should give our lives in business, education, and works of charity to see it come to pass. We should be doing so to the extent that each of us is gifted and able to do so.